fundamentalism. What does it mean to be an independent fundamental Baptist? And that's, uh, that's a term that is getting more and more ridiculed today. Um, but honestly, and, and I've mentioned this before, but when we talk about uh, basketball and, and just getting to the fundamentals of basketball, somebody who teaches dribbling and passing and shooting and all of this stuff is, is teaching the fundamentals of basketball. You are a basketball fundamentalist, essentially. And somebody who is a fundamentalist when it comes to the scripture is just somebody who uh, holds to the fundamentals of the truths of the Word of God. So we talked about the meaning of biblical fundamentalism, and then uh, a couple weeks ago, before we left, I started talking to you about the message of a biblical fundamentalist. And so let me review quickly. I gave you five things already, and I'm going to give you a couple more of those tonight. But number one that we believe as, an, as a biblical fundamentalist is the inspiration and the authority of scriptures. The Bible is the inspired word of God, and it is our ultimate authority. Nothing else, no, no other books, no other creeds, none of these other things supersedes the word of God. If it's in the Bible, we ought to be teaching it and preaching it and doing it. If it's not in the Bible, then we ought not to be teaching and preaching and doing it. That's the first thing. The second thing that is a fundamental is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And if there was no virgin birth, then we would not have a sinless, perfect Savior. It's, it's absolutely essential. Number three is the blood atonement. And we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That is how we are redeemed. And that's what the Bible says. And so the blood atonement is absolutely important. Number four that we talked about is the deity of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people, and, and I just spent a, a couple weeks in Israel talking with uh, a lot of different Jews, and, and our guide that we had for the entire time that we were there, uh, the, the guide that was there to kind of show us the secular side of things, was Jewish. And uh, he was very adamant that Jesus Christ was not the Messiah. And I'll tell you, and we're going to talk a lot more about this on Sunday nights as we get into it, um, with the, you know, talking about all these different places and how they fit in with the Bible and where they fit in and, and show you a bunch of pictures of those things. But uh, they're waiting for the Messiah to come. And everything that they're describing that the Messiah is going to be is exactly what we find in the Bible as a description of the Antichrist. And that's who they're looking for. That's who they're waiting for. Uh, Jesus was a, was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was a good man, but he was not God. And that is absolutely in complete opposition to what the Bible teaches and preaches. And so we believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, and we also believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's another thing that the Jews do not believe. The, the, those who claim Judaism uh, is that there was no bodily resurrection, but we see that uh, so many people saw him after he resurrected from the dead. There is no way to explain the missing body of Jesus Christ from the grave other than the fact that he was no longer there. So tonight then, and we find this in Titus chapter 2, I'm going to give you a lot of verses tonight, so turn to as many of these as you can. But number six, when it comes to being a biblical fundamentalist, is the premillennial return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, it's not commonly listed as one of the fundamentals of the faith, uh, but the early fundamentalists strongly emphasized the premillennial return of Jesus Christ. Now, Titus chapter 2 and verse number 13 says this, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Turn over to Acts chapter 1. 
God's word, number one, and I, I have a few things here. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to have all these verses up there for you to write them down if you want to go back and look at them later because we are going to uh, go through a good number of them fairly quickly. Uh, but the first thing that we see is that God, God's word teaches that just as Jesus left the earth, he's going to come in like manner, right? He ascended up into a cloud from the Mount of Olives. We stood there. It's just amazing to think about the fact that Jesus Christ ascended from the very place that we were standing. But he's going to come right back there, and he's going to come back in the same way. He's going to come in the clouds. And we find in Acts chapter 1, in verse number 11, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Our, our, our guide, and I, I'm gonna, you're, you're going to have to bear with me because there's so much that we saw and so much that we dealt with, and it all fits in with the Bible. But our guide is many times, we had a lot of conversations with him about uh, Jesus Christ being the Messiah and Jesus Christ uh, 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 being the Savior and being crucified and risen and, and, and uh, that he's coming again a second time. And, and he's been a guide for 30 years, so he's heard it many, many times, and he would say all, you know, all the time, and as you believe it and as you see it in the Bible, this is where Jesus, whatever, you know. So he talked about all these different places, but we asked him many times, you know, uh, uh, about Jesus Christ coming back. And he said, well, if he comes back and slaps me on, on, the, on, the, on my back and says, it's good to be back, then I'll believe it then. But until then, I don't believe that. I don't believe that Jesus Christ rose, and I don't believe that, that, it's the, that he's coming back. He said, I believe that we're still waiting for the Messiah to come the first time. But we see that Jesus Christ went up into heaven, and they saw him go up into heaven, and he's going to come back in the same way. Number two, Jesus personally promised that he would return to this earth. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, especially as he neared the end of his ministry, he told them that he was going to come back. And if, if, if we can't believe the words of Jesus Christ himself, then, then who can you believe, right? But in Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 27... It says this, for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse number 37 in that same chapter. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 39, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus Christ personally promised that he was going to return to this earth. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because the Apostle Paul wrote and he encouraged Christians to be faithful and to anticipate the appearing of Jesus Christ. The first time is to call Christians to meet him in the air. The second time is going to be to rule and reign during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. That 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 15... And these are, this is a familiar passage to you, I believe, but he says this, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And I think verse 18 is, is so key to this. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. It's a comfort to know that Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to take us out before we have to go through any kind of judgment or any of his wrath or any of those other things. Uh, turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. 
And we see this in verse number one. And of course, Revelation, uh, John wrote the book of Revelation. John was the last of all the apostles to die. Uh, he was the only one that actually died a natural death. All of the other ones were martyred for what they believed in, which, by the way, is another strong evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. Why would they be willing to give their life for something they knew was a hoax? Why would they be willing to give their life for something they knew was fake or something that they had fabricated? Eventually, they would come out and say, you know what? This is a, this, this is a fake. It's not worth losing my life over. We pushed this, with this story for a long time, but I'm not willing to die for it. No, every single one of them was willing to die because they knew it was true. And they had seen it with their own eyes, and they were willing to die for that. Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. But John wrote in Revelation 20, in verse number 1, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Bible-believing Christians have always believed the promise that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and that one day Jesus is going to return to literally establish a 1,000-year reign of peace on the earth. And all these doctrines, in fact, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. All of these doctrines, we talked about five of them before. We see this one. They, they speak of our faith. But over the centuries, Bible-believing Christians have not only been concerned with the facts of the Christian faith, but also with the practice of the Christian faith. In other words, we ought to live our lives in light of what we believe. You can say you believe it all you want to, but if your life does not back up that you believe it, then it doesn't matter if you say you believe it or not, right? The same way that we can say that we believe in being holy and being righteous and living godly, if we don't do it, then we don't actually believe it, right? And the same thing is true, that we can say all we want to, that Jesus Christ is coming back and that we believe that he's coming and that he's going to take us to heaven and all of these other things, but that ought to change the way that we live. We see in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. In other words, what he's saying here is in light of the things that we believe about this, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again, and it could be at any moment, what kind of conversation or what kind of lifestyle should we have? The Bible teaches two primary ways that Christians are supposed to live out their Christian life. And the fundamental Christians through the centuries have always believed 
in these two practices, and I'm just going to give you those two and we'll be done tonight. Number one is this. Christians ought to be reaching the lost. Turn over to John chapter 20. If we believe, as a Bible-believing Christian, that the blood atonement was necessary because of the fall of man, if we believe that the wages of sin is death, if we believe that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, then we must be about our Father's business. John chapter 20 and verse number 21 says this, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. A couple pages later in Acts chapter 1, and verse number 8 is a verse that you could probably quote, but it's so key to what we should be doing as Christians here on this earth. I've said it many, many times before, but if, if, uh, if, if God didn't have anything for us to do after we got saved, then he would take us home the minute we accepted him as our Savior. He's got a job for us to do. We have a responsibility as Christians to share that gospel with as many people as we can. And he tells us in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. I preached a message on that or, or, or with that verse right before we left in the, in the importance of missions and our Jerusalem. Our home is the, is the first thing that he listed there because it's important that we not just send out missionaries. We should be doing everything we can to reach our Jerusalem. That's right here in this area, but, but also Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And he'll give us power to do that. That's what the Holy Ghost is going to come upon us to do, to be witnesses for him in those areas. You'll find that Bible-believing fundamental churches are laboring diligently to reach the lost. When we lose our vision for reaching the lost, we basically have lost our vision of what it means to be a church. Uh, we're not just a country club. We're not just a place to get together every week. We, are, we have a responsibility to reach beyond these four walls and get out into this community and share the message of the gospel with everybody that we can with the time that we have left. If there is no heaven or no hell, if the Bible may or may not be the word of God, why witness? Why even attend church? Right? But if we believe all of these things, if we believe there is a hell, how much do we have to hate somebody to not tell them how they can stay out of that place? Right? Uh, uh, and I don't, I don't know a lot about this, but maybe you've heard of Penn and Teller, right? These guys that are magicians. And uh, one of them, um, uh, I think it's Penn Gillette. That's right. He's the one, that, the bigger guy, long hair and all that stuff. He's the one that talks and, and does all this stuff. He's, he's an atheist, and he's very well known as an atheist. But he, he said that one time he was, uh, he was at, a, at a place where he was doing a show, and this guy, who was obviously a Christian, told him that he was a Christian, walked up to him and gave him a Bible and had written a little thing in the front of it and whatever else he said. He was one of the nicest guys he'd ever met in his life, which I think is exactly the way that it ought to be. Uh, you're rude to somebody or you're just trying to shove it down their throat. They're going to reject it, and that might be something that turns them away from the Word of God. But he said, and, and he's talking about this, and, and, and uh, he went on YouTube or somewhere and just made a video about this himself because he was so moved by what this man did. This guy gave him a Bible, and he said, there's some verses that are underlined in that Bible, and it'll tell you how you can know for sure that you, that you can go to heaven when you die. This is the word of God. He said, I don't want to see you spend an eternity in hell. And Pendulette, this famous atheist, said, I don't believe the Bible. 
I don't believe that there's a God. I don't believe any of those things. He said, but I'll tell you one thing. That man believed what he was, what he was reading in the word of God. And that man proved that he believed that. And he said, he said this. He said, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that there's a hell and to believe that those who don't accept Jesus Christ as their Savior are going there and that there is a heaven, and those who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior are going to heaven. How much do you have to hate somebody to not do everything you can to spread that message? He said, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I'm an atheist, and I'm a proud atheist, but how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that with all your heart and not tell them? That's coming from an atheist, and that's exactly why, as Bible-believing Christians, our responsibility, our job, our focus ought to be doing everything we can to get the message of the gospel out. Our doctrine has to produce a lifestyle. We have to go on for the Lord Jesus Christ and do his will for our lives. But the second thing then, when it comes to practice, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Because first of all, we should be reaching the lost. And if we believe everything that we say we believe, we will be spreading the message of the gospel. But the second thing is that Christians living separate from worldly practices and unscriptural churches. And I would say this many times is referred to as personal and ecclesiastical separation. We ought to have personal separation. There ought to be something that separates us from the world. We ought to be able to be seen as different from the world. But our churches ought to be the same way. And when a church starts moving into the direction of apostasy or into the direction of what, we see, what we're seeing so often now in Baptist churches and even so-called independent fundamental Baptist churches is a moving away toward this contemporary Christianity, contemporary worship, contemporary all of this other stuff. That's not what, that's, that is not something that separates us and has separated us for years from the world. We ought to be personally separated from the world. But we also, we also should be ecclesiastically separated from the world as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 16 says this, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Turn over Second Peter chapter three. Christians who are fundamental in their approach to the Word of God, and that's what I'm saying. A biblical fundamentalist is somebody who is fundamental in their approach to the Word of God. They find out that the more they grow in the Word of God, and the more they understand the grace of God, the further away they move from living a worldly lifestyle, and that, that would bring reproach upon our Savior. And that, that, that is, and this is a, maybe a message for a different day, but I've mentioned this and I've preached on this so many times that, that, that if you believe these things and if, you, and if you believe the word of God, it will produce within you a hatred for the things of the world. You're not going to be watching the world's movies. You're not going to be listening to the world's music. You're not going to be going to the world's places because it's going to produce a hatred. The world hates God. The world hates Christianity, and the world hates anything to do with God and Christianity and the Bible. And so by going to these places, you're supporting them. You're supporting those who hate everything that you stand for. They hate everything that you believe in. 
They don't have a care in the world about trying to do something that's pleasing to God. And yet we go and we take part in all of these things and we're supporting them and we're uh, entertaining these ideas and it's just pulling us further and further away from God. God's word tells us to pursue lives of holiness, lives of godliness, lives of righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 1. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? It's almost a rhetorical question. You see everything that the world is. You see that the world is going to be uh, uh, destroyed. Everything that's in the world is going to pass away. Why would you want to be a part of that? And how much more should that push us toward holiness and godliness and a, and, a, and a Christian lifestyle? See, Christians who believe the word of God are also going to distance themselves from any religious institution that's not teaching and preaching the truth of the word of God. And we're finding so often that as churches are changing the Bible version, that they're moving away from the King James Version of the Bible and watering down the Bible and watering down the gospel and watering down the message because they're afraid that they're going to offend somebody. I'm not trying to offend anybody by any stretch, but if the Bible is offensive, then it's the Word of God that's offensive. It's not me. And I don't want to be offensive to anybody, but sometimes the truth is offensive because it, it makes us uncomfortable because we're not doing it. We're not living it. We're not following it. Biblical fundamentalists practice separation from false teachers and sin. But we have to be careful that the whole emphasis of a ministry is not dealing with what we are not. Right? Turn over to Titus chapter 2. But I think this is an important concept. There's a lot of things that we are against. But if all we focus on is what we are against, man, just live, focus on living for God. Focus on living holiness. Focus on living righteousness. Focus on living godliness, right? Don't tell me what I shouldn't do. Tell me what I should do, and that helps me keep my focus where it ought to be. Let me give you an example. I, was, when I, I, I play golf, and I don't play it all that much. Uh, I played a lot more uh, uh, you know, years ago, but when I was first learning how to play, and I just, I just learned by watching some videos and things, and, and uh, this guy that I that, uh, started following was teaching how to do all the swing and everything else, and he had uh, one thing in particular. He said, you know, you have sand traps and you have water and you have all of these things. And he said, I'll go and I'll play a course that I've never played before and I'll usually play it with somebody that has. And he said, I don't ask them, where's the bunkers? Where's the water? What should I stay away from? I say, where should I aim on this hole? He said, if I know where I'm supposed to aim, then it really doesn't matter what else is there. If I'm aiming in the right direction and I can hit that, then it doesn't matter what else is, is there. I'm not going to, you know, but, but then you tell me, hey, there's a bunker on the left and there's a bunker on the right and there's water to the left a little farther up. Now you've got all these other things that you're thinking about and focusing on and, oh, I've got to stay away from that. He said, almost never fails. You end up in one of those bunkers because that's what's in your mind, right? Stop focusing on the things that, you, that we shouldn't be doing and start focusing on the things that we should. If you're focusing on what you should be doing, then all the rest of those things are just going to be peripherals and you're not going to worry about, you're not going to focus on them anyway. Now, I, I think it's definitely very important that we, uh, that we mention the pitfalls and that we mention the things that we should stay away from. Um, but we have to be careful that the whole emphasis of, of a ministry is not dealing with what we're against. Why is that? Well, it's because man looked with on the outward appearance, right? And, and that's important, but God's looking on the heart. It's easy for God's people to become more concerned with outward appearance than it is to become 
uh, with a true heart um, transformation. And, and what happens so often is, is Christians have gotten very good at looking right on the outside and not being right on the inside. It's easy to, to appear separated on the surface, but to be corrupt in the heart. Bible-based separation has to be motivated by the grace of God at work in our hearts, teaching us the, to deny ungodliness in this day. And that's exactly what we find in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So, some people would say that Bible-believing Christians don't understand grace. Right? They would refer to grace almost in the sense of a license to live a carnal life. And that's a lot of people today. Boy, I'm telling you what, so many people are finding grace, right? Oh, I didn't know anything about the grace of God until I dropped all my standards, and now I'm just living in the grace of God, right? That's, that's, that's what you're finding more and more today. The grace of God is not a license to sin. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. What does the Bible say in Romans? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If you're dead to sin, why would you want to live in it, right? Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is there so that when we do make a mistake, God gives us that grace, right? He for, he's, he's willing to forgive us for those sins and everything else, but because of that grace, it should keep us from sin, not give us a license to do that. But the, the proper in, interpretation of God's grace is that it's a disposition within the heart of an obedient Christian. God's grace would never cause us to live according to the dictation of the world. We should live more and more like Jesus Christ because of that grace. I've known a lot of people who knew the right doctrines, but in their efforts to, to share and to know those doctrines, they didn't cultivate that tender heart for God, and they fell away from the Lord. Here in our church, as much as we can, I have never and I will never apologize for, for our desire to be a balanced, fundamental church that uplifts and contends for the doctrines and takes a strong stand. When you start apologizing for taking a strong stand, that's when you, you're, you're, you've already taken the first step toward, uh, toward compromising. And I have no desire to compromise, no desire to change the truth of the word of God. We don't want to neglect the nurturing and the cultivating of the hearts of our people to love Jesus Christ, to read his word, to be tender towards him. We want to develop hearts that are pleasing to an almighty God. And so, really, in, in conclusion, uh, with this whole idea of the message, and of course, there's more things that, that would be the message of a biblical fundamentalist, but those are the key things that we cannot and, and must not change from, but Throughout the centuries, fundamental Christians have not only emphasized those vital doctrines, but, they, but also these vital practices. They, they follow the Word of God in teaching that, that the whole of our Christian lives should flow from the heart, from, from, the, from, a, uh, from the motivating, transforming work of God within us. And, and if that's not where it comes from, then you might as well throw it all away. If it's not coming from a heart of love for God, then we're doing it all for the wrong reason, right? And, 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 and just look at 1 Corinthians 13. That entire chapter tells us that you could speak with the tongue of men and angels. You could prophesy. You could do all of these other things. If you do it without charity, it counts for nothing, right? Christian life is not a system. Christian life is a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about a structure. It's about the Savior. 
what structure we put in place in our churches and in, the, in our individual lives have to be to facilitate a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not doing it because we're just trying to go through the motions. We don't just do church, right? We have church. We have a place where our relationship with Jesus Christ should be deepened. And so the structure for a Bible-believing Christian is God's structure as it's given in his word. In other words, we, our relationship with him has to be his way, not ours. And most of Christianity wants a relationship with God the way that they want it, not the way he wants it. And that's why most of Christianity you can barely identify as Christianity in this world. Looks nothing like what a Christian ought to look like. It acts nothing like a Christian ought to act. Basically what it says is I can live my life the way that I want to. I can live like the world. I can do everything the world does, and I can call myself a Christian. And you're going to like it. You're going to accept it. And that's not what the Bible says. That, that, so that brings us to the question that we'll look at next week. What motivates a Bible-believing fundamentalist Christian? Why contend for the faith? Why live a godly life? We're going to take a look at that when we get back together next week. But this is so important and such a, such a needed thing in our, in our day and age that we live in today when so many churches, even, even the so-called independent fundamental Baptist churches are moving away from those things. And we should be moving closer to those things and, and holding them more and more dear, holding the word of God more and more dear, holding our relationship with Christ more and more dear as ye see the day approaching. Isn't that what the Bible says? Right? We should want to be together more. We should want to read the Bible more. We should want to pray more. We should want to spread the gospel more, not less, as Jesus Christ's coming is getting closer and closer. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. And boy, when you're living for him, you're looking for him. When you're not, you don't want him to show up. Right? And, but if we say we believe it, then it ought to change the way we live. And it's not just a structure. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we ought to be growing deeper and deeper in that relationship with him every single day. We'll talk about the meaning of that next week or the motivation for that next week. But let's pray and we'll be done for tonight. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness to us. And thank you for an opportunity we've had to be here together tonight. I do pray that you'd help us to, to, to be strengthened in our relationship with you, to be strengthened in what we believe and to know exactly why it is that we say we believe these things that we hold so dear. We thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.